I'm Madeline from Hawthorne Woods, Illinois, a student pharmacist attending Butler University College of Pharmacy in Indianapolis. You're listening to Pharmacy Forward, a podcast about transforming knowledge into action. Greetings and welcome to the Pharmacy Forward podcast. My name is Megan Brown, and my co-host today is Rebecca Heath. We're from the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy. Hi, everyone. In this episode of Pharmacy Forward, we're going to be talking about pharmacy billing. Pharmacy billing has been a hot topic with the push of provider status. Over the years, there have been many advancements in the services pharmacists can provide and also the services that pharmacists can bill for. In my journey as an ambulatory care pharmacist, I have gone from being grant-funded and then having to explore what codes we could use for billing. It was really a uphill battle trying to learn more about what billing opportunities existed, specifically for me in federally qualified health centers, but also just thinking about the opportunities to be paid for the work that pharmacists are really providing. Megan, I definitely agree. Sometimes it can feel like an uphill battle. I know for me as a new practitioner about to start my own clinical service, I feel a little bit overwhelmed. And I think today will be a great conversation on how to get started and hopefully overcome some of those initial fears. So today we have two guests, Dr. John Gums, who is the Associate Dean for Clinical and Administrative Affairs, and also the Professor of Pharmacy and Medicine in the Departments of Pharmacotherapy and Translational Research at the University of Florida. Our second guest is Dr. Eric Dietrich, a Clinical Associate Professor from the University of Florida. He is a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist and a certified professional coder. Together, John and Eric have really gotten the process of pharmacist billing down to a science. Currently, they're working on creating a tool to help others build their services as well. John and Eric, welcome. Well, thank you very much for having us today. Thanks, Megan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, guys. Let's talk about the meaning of being credentialed in billing and coding. So, Eric, tell us about the process you went through and how you pursued these credentials. And maybe how does this credential differ from other types of credentialing? Sure. So, John and I have been working on this billing stuff for quite a while, and we quickly realized that it's hard to know what to do when we didn't know the rules of the game. It'd be like trying to go play basketball, trying to get down the court if you didn't know you were allowed to dribble. So we decided that if we were going to be serious about this, we we needed to know the rules. And doing some research, we found that there's coding organizations, and the biggest one is called the American Academy of Professional Coders, or AAPC. And they offer training programs though, where you could get credentialed as a certified professional coder or certified professional biller. And so I was fortunate enough to get a grant through our college to help support the cost for that. And then I did the online modules, read the book, and then got the credentials. And I guess the way it's different is, I think for us as pharmacists, our credentialing is really about advancing our knowledge base and patient-centered care type things that we would need to help us with patients. And this is just about coding and billing. Most coders and billers don't see patients face-to-face. They don't interact with patients. They interact in the background to make sure that visits are are billed at the appropriate level, that make sure the documentation is appropriate for whatever is being billed. Uh, it was a whole new kind of terminology mindset. So it was a little bit of a challenge at the start, but once you got into it, it, it was just like learning a new language. So it, it was helpful and It's been something that we've really leveraged over the past few years since I've got my credentialing to make it better for us in the clinical setting and have conversations with the coders and billers in our department 
as we try to work together to, to make our services more financially sustainable. And let me just piggyback on Eric's response. I, I can't emphasize enough to any administrators who might listen to this podcast that the investment in providing the support to go through this process would be immeasurable in its return on investment. Eric, having the credentialing that he did, in essence, changed the paradigm of the discussions that we were having with many of the key stakeholders, particularly those in the billing and billing compliance department. In short, you don't know what you don't know. And so if you don't know the rules of the game, you don't know whether billing and compliance are actually telling you something that's right or wrong. Once Eric had those credentials, it changed the whole dynamic of those conversations because we now knew what was allowed and not allowed. We knew how to ask better questions. Eric, I can only imagine that the time investment that took to become a certified coder. So kudos to you for going through that process. And I'm sure it's been so advantageous as you've created your own services and made them more financially stable. If you were just getting started in billing for pharmacy services, what advice would you have to start the process? Sure. I mean, to get to the 10,000 foot view, I think one of the the first things you have to do when you're considering exploring or evolving your pharmacy billing practices is you you have to develop relationships. You have to develop connections and you have to identify those key stakeholders. And I think most pharmacists would assume that key stakeholders would include the providers that they're working with, the physicians, the nurse practitioners, but it's also going to include administrators within the department or group. And that would include non-medical people, including like financial administration, the billing compliance group within your organization, as well as the legal group. I would also add that at the end of the day, even when you have the relationships, it's a simple equation of cost versus revenue. And you're going to have to be able to build a financial plan that would not only accurately predict based on actual data what the projected revenue would be of the service that you're suggesting to offer, but you have to counterbalance that against the real costs of that. And those costs could be things that are very obvious, like overhead, if you plan to sit in a brick and mortar location. And there may be non-modifiable costs, including taxes, for example, depending on the organization that you're associated with. One of the costs is the actual cost of billing. So it's not just about the relationships, although those are critical. But the second element for success at the, at the high level is to have and spend the time to build a solid business model or financial plan in order for that service to remain sustainable over time. So once those relationships are built, I I think there's some terminology that needs to be understood so that way you can have better conversations with the financial department, the billers and coders, the other administrators that are going to be involved with the service to speak their language. So 
with physicians, they are not really concerned with reimbursement or revenue generation. They get their targets based on what's called the work RVU. So the work RVU is a relative value unit. It's meant to try to have a standardized denominator for all different codes that exist. So these could be office visit codes. These could be skin biopsy codes. These could be codes for surgeries and different procedures and things like that. And it's a way to try to have some sort of common denominator between them to allow an even comparison. So the physicians are concerned with a subcomponent of the main RVU called the work RVU. And this is how they track their productivity. This is what their bonus structures are built on. So as you're talking about building a service, if we're talking with physicians and trying to get them to be champions or get them to collaborate with us and showing them the incentives of collaborating, dollars and cents doesn't really have the same kind of connotation with them because they're more focused on work RVU. So understanding the work RVUs with each service line that you're trying to provide. Another thing to consider is your payer mix. The payers are going to be Medicare is the biggest one, but then there's tons of individual private payers. There's Medicaid and other things like that. So the payers all may follow the same general conventions for the codes, but one, they may reimburse differently for some codes than others. Some may not reimburse for certain codes while others do. And so you need to know what payers you're going to be working with to see if those codes are even going to be reasonable to use. Then it's trying to figure out what level of service are we going to bill for this service that we're implementing. So most often for the office visit codes, we're going to utilize evaluation and management codes. Those are most often abbreviated as E&M codes. These would be things like your level one, your level two visits, chronic care management, TCM codes, things like that. So knowing what level of service, this is where the coding and billing certifications became really helpful because Beforehand, we knew there were different levels of service, but we didn't know what differentiated a level one versus a two versus a three versus a four and so on. But now that we know that stuff very clearly and intimately, we can structure notes to have exactly what we need to get a level of service. So that really is important as your terms of building a business model and overall projections, if you know what level of service you're going to do and making sure what you're doing is going to meet that level of service. And then lastly, as it pertains to kind of just general revenue type stuff, I think it's really important to know the difference between charges and collections. As a clinic, they're going to set their charge for any given level of service to be quite high. So let's say payer A reimburses 100, payer B reimburses 120, and payer C reimburses 110. The clinic will probably set their charge at 140 just to make sure that if any new payer comes in, they're going to get everything out of that charge that they can. So the charge amount is what the clinic charges the insurance. And then the collection amount is what actually comes back to the clinic. So when we are talking with our financial um, colleagues, we look at both charges and collections and we're more focused on collections because this is the real dollars that we're actually getting back at the end. But it allowed us to kind of create some some ratios to figure out on average, if we charge X, we're getting this in return. But understanding that process was really helpful for us at the early stages to try to make sure our service was on track and producing the financial targets that we needed to. Yeah. And and I would just add two quick kind of pearls or caveats. One is a common myth that I've run into in talking with pharmacists, clinical pharmacists and administrators around the whole billing for service discussion is that they equate level one E&M to incident two. Incident two billing does not describe a level. It describes a method of billing, how you're billing. 
the level is determined based more on what you do during during that visit. As Eric mentioned, the payer mix, the patient volume, ultimately you're going to be calculating how many visits does that pharmacist need to make at, at a given level of care in order to break even based on the reimbursable rate for that level of service. So it sounds complicated. It's not as complicated as it sounds once you get into it. But I just want the audience to recognize that it's not just simply about revenue. You have to factor in the costs. And that may, as it did for us, dictate the level of care that you build your models in. And I was looking at this yesterday with a student. And with our overhead costs and everything involved, if we do a level one, we lose about $18 a visit. And so there's no amount of visit that we can do to break even because every single time we drop a bill, it becomes net negative. Right. And I think that's in part because of this myth that I mentioned earlier that a lot of pharmacists and administrators are are under the assumption of is that incident two is level one. So they don't ever think about going above level one. And the reality is, is if you actually look at the level of service that most of those pharmacists are providing during what they are calling a level one, it would easily, easily meet the minimum requirements for a higher level of service, which would also be incident two, but it would generate a higher reimbursable rate that would then allow them to get on the positive side of their costs. And so that that's really the message that I'm trying to convey is don't don't get into the mindset trap of equating level one with incident two. Wow. I already feel enlightened. So I don't know about you, Rebecca. I am jotting down tons of notes. I'm already on my second page. I've got lots of stuff to discuss with my administrators. Lots of gems that we have gained already with just, I feel like, two questions. So I'm going to move us forward and and ask, as you're developing these relationships, John, tell me a little bit about what steps you can take if you get pushback from your clinic staff or maybe from insurance companies. And if you guys have any examples of of a time when that happened, we'd love to hear about that. Sure, Megan. So I'll, I'll just talk a little bit more high level and then I'll turn it over to Eric. But I think when it comes to pushback, and that could come from any number of areas, it could come from the provider themselves, it could come from a management type individual who's maybe just fearful of doing something different. And in billing and compliance specifically, we found the pushback there to be driven primarily by the fear of an audit. So for billing and compliance, the easiest way to not get audited is to basically say no to everything. Don't do anything. And, and if you don't do anything, then you've pretty much eliminated your risk of an audit. And that's, again, where Eric's credentialing that we talked about earlier came in to be very valuable to us because we knew that some of the pushback we were getting from those organizations and those groups within the organization um, was simply because they just had never done it before. What we're talking about when we talk about pharmacy services, clinical services that pharmacists provide, we're primarily talking about chronic medication management. So these are patients that I think we all recognize can be extremely time-consuming. So when we focus on the kind of patients who would fall under the umbrella of a chronic medication management patient, 
And we then build proposals for pharmacy billing around that type of population. We can deal with pushback quite easily from providers by simply painting the picture for them that we are taking a very time-consuming patient off your schedule and giving you that time back that you can then backfill with a patient that really needs the level of training and skill set that you can provide. So for example, if I took a level three ENM incident two patient off of a provider schedule and gave them that time back, they could backfill that with maybe a new patient that they could then justify billing at a level four or level five. So it's like a win-win for the providers and the clinic. And it really all comes back to the most valuable commodity is time. And we're taking a very time-consuming patient off their schedule. We're not excluding them from the care. We're not disconnecting them from the care. They remain totally connected. But at the end of the day, we're giving them that valuable commodity back. And that's the best way that I found over time to deal with pushback. And I think another good way to help deal with pushback at the provider level is, again, looking at RVUs and how that translates to their bonus and incentives overall. Because if they're collaborating with a pharmacist and they're able to see their own patients and then supervise us and get some credit for the things that we're doing, in essence, they're double dipping. And this is where understanding the RVUs for each level of service becomes helpful. Then sharing those projections with the providers to show them in an objective way, hey, if we work together, this is what you can do just from my services, let alone what you could do now being able to backfill all this time that you have. But as we move up the ladder, I think the biggest thing that we've gotten pushback from is the coders. Like John mentioned that anytime you do something new, it's, it's an unknown territory and therefore in a gray zone where it's not maybe 100% clear to the coders and the billers, especially because as pharmacists, most people think of us as the community pharmacists where we have a dispensing role. Then we tell them we want to see patients and they say, well, are you going to be dispensing the medicines to them in the clinic? And no, we, we want to manage them and adjust their medications and help them reach their, their disease state management goals and do it safely. And so there's just some background education that goes to these different groups about what we can do, what are um, our credentials and experience and training. But as you move up again, the ladder to like higher level administrators, speaking with them, you have to combine all these things, the time saved for their local providers, the revenue generation for the clinic, the RVUs for the physicians, the patient care related aspects and quality of care and access of care that can come from multidisciplinary type services taking care of these complex patients. And Megan, I would just quickly add that in many of the situations where we have clinical pharmacists, we did not start with 100% uptake by the providers that were working in, in that clinic. We started with maybe a handful, but because of the value, many of the providers that were not early adopters actually came to us or approached us after the start of the program and said, how can I be part of that? I, I want to I wanna get my patients to see you as well, given the fact that they were getting this time back and they could do so much more with that time that would ultimately not only help them in their professional targets and their professional goals, but contributed significantly to their personal job satisfaction and their quality of life. Yeah, this is great advice. It sounds like whenever you understand the key motivations of your key stakeholders, whether it's time or revenue, that you could really tailor your response to overcome those potential barriers. 
My next question is, are there any types of services for billing that you have seen be more successful or any kind of services that have been less successful? Sure. This is going to be really dependent on your geographic location. I think we're all well aware that the state statutes and administrative code for each state as far as what the pharmacist's scope of practice are are very different. There are certain states that have passed provider status legislation for pharmacists working in specific areas or for specific payers. So that really dictates a lot. And that's what makes it a little bit difficult to answer this question in terms of a general one-size-fits-all approach. But in general, there are some codes that are a little bit easier to use. And that's just because the language is a little bit more inclusive of other provider types, as opposed to being limited to just physicians and non-physician providers. But in general, those things like CCM and TCM are a little bit more inclusive for pharmacists because the language of those codes includes the terms clinical staff. And there's nobody really that would preclude a pharmacist from meeting that definition of clinical staff. And there's some more remote patient monitoring or principal care management codes that also utilize that clinical staff. So with those codes, we instantly fit the definition. Another thing that's really nice about CCM and TCM specifically is the level of physician supervision required is much different than it would be for, say, an incident to visit. For an incident to visit, the physician has to be in the same building as you. They don't necessarily have to be in the same room, but they have to be in the building and available to provide assistance if needed. Whereas in general supervision, you can be in a different location as them. So you could be at your institution providing CCM services for a clinic that's 10 or 15 miles down the road you're able to generate revenue for that. The providers are able to kind of supervise you and get some of the work RVU incentives along with those services by being the billing provider, but it maximizes everybody's time and efficiency. So those two are probably the the ones that are the best, but they also are in some ways the hardest to utilize too, because for TCM codes, you have to have patients that are discharged from the hospital and you have to know very quickly when those patients are discharged. And for CCM, you have to have patients opt into this program that have two or more chronic conditions, and then a provider has to develop a care plan for that patient. So the front-end work and requirements to utilize those codes make them sometimes a little bit more difficult. Maybe one other thing to add to that list would be annual wellness visits, but I think the drawback of that is the amount of required components to do an annual wellness visit is really high. None of them are really pharmacy-centric in the sense of true medication management type services. So you could spend an hour on the requirements and you haven't even addressed their elevated blood pressure, elevated A1C, drug-drug interaction, poor adherence, improper administration, all those kinds of things. But that's another one that luckily pharmacists are kind of able to do more directly and the acceptance of pharmacists doing those directly is a little bit higher. Thank you so much for that information, Eric. I have seen success at our institution with the annual wellness visits and also the remote patient monitoring services. And I'm so glad that you've had success with the TCM codes and also the chronic care management or CCM codes as well. So whenever we're starting these new services, say we've talked to our key stakeholders, we've gotten our buy-in, we've decided on which services that we want to provide. So now we're in the throws of it, what are some of the key metrics that you think we should capture to track our progress and ensure that we are having success with getting more revenue? And is this something that you would track by yourself or are there other people that would be helpful to loop in to make sure that your service is successful? So 
Unfortunately, this is a big area. I think that's very essential to making services sustainable. And a good example of this is when we first started doing TCM billing in our family medicine clinic, it was a brand new code. Nobody really knew exactly how it would go. We knew what the requirements were and kind of what to do. And we thought it was just as easy as flipping a switch and everything would be fine. But I think in the first month, we called about 120 people that were discharged from when we successfully billed four visits that entire month. And because we were keeping track of both how many discharges there were, how many patients we called, and then how many ultimately came in and were successfully billed for that, it very clearly and quickly showed us that we had a problem. We didn't necessarily know exactly from tracking those metrics where the problem was, but it highlighted very quickly that something's wrong here. And so with only four people being billed, it allowed us to kind of look at those four people, see what was done for them and not done for others. And it highlighted that people just weren't getting into clinic in the right time, or they came into clinic in the appropriate time frame, and the providers weren't utilizing the correct code just because it was a brand new code for them, and they weren't used to circling that code on the fee sheet. So we were able to kind of quickly rectify this in the first couple of months, and then more and more visits got billed. And as we continued to track those metrics, we found other problems. It took probably six to eight months for everything to be fully operational and optimized. So... The type of stuff that you track, I think it really depends on what your service is, but really it's going to come down to things like charges and collections, how many visits you did, how long it took those visits to be completed, your overall dollar per hour revenue generation and compared to your costs. And then I think it's always helpful to have clinical outcomes as well, but it's a lot of stuff that we have to collect on our own. So we do have some others in our institution that will give us some reports that look at collections, look at visits but we like to double check that with the data that we collect. So at my clinic, I'll collect how many visits I saw, what level of service I build those at. But the electronic data is going to be certainly helpful. But like I mentioned earlier, with the, the lag time between charges and collections being six to 12 weeks, you won't know for a while if things are going well. But I don't think we really have the luxury of starting something, waiting six or eight months, and then saying, okay, let's sit down and take a look at this and make sure it's going well. Because if it's not going well... Now you've lost six months worth of time that you could have spent improving things, making things better, getting the ship righted. So that way by month six or eight, things are fully optimized. So it's really, really important to track all this stuff. And again, it's more work that occurs outside of the face-to-face visit with the patient. But this is just as essential as your pre-background work that you did before you even implemented your service from the start. And Rebecca, I would simply add that if there's a pharmacist or organization that's considering starting a service and doing billing with that service, I would encourage them to track the time per visit because your original models are based on best estimate. And if you, for example, estimated that you would need 20 minutes per visit, and therefore your models were based on a maximum of three visits per hour, but you found in actuality that your visit lengths are 15 minutes, not 20 minutes, that adds an extra visit per hour to your model that you can then adjust the model moving forward. And that may have significant impact in terms of projected revenue. The other thing I would recommend, I would absolutely be capturing the no-shows. So we all know in working in outpatient clinical services, there are patients that have appointments that just don't show up. And so having the no-show rate, if you will, for patients that are scheduled to be seen by the pharmacist, I think is a very helpful metric. 
to have when you're talking about the success or the potential for success of the service moving forward. And then the last thing I would add is don't rely simply on the partner's data for billing accuracy. All of our billing provider faculty pharmacists track their own metrics. And it's a rare situation where what we track, knowing what we've done, actually is equal to what the organization says we've done. Some of that is because of that lag time in terms of of when the bill was dropped versus when the reimbursement arrived. But even when we account for that variable, we still oftentimes have variations in the productivity that we know that we provided versus what the organization's administration or financial group is telling us we provided. So do the work to establish your own spreadsheet, your own red cap, whatever you want to build that data in. It will be well worth it when you want discussions down the road or at the end of the year when you're trying to decide whether this is a sustainable service and looking at the potential for growth moving forward. Well, John and Eric, thank you so much for joining us today for the Pharmacy Forward podcast. I know a lot of student pharmacists, residents, and pharmacists are interested in advancing pharmacy practice, but they just don't quite know how to get started. So I think today's conversation will really provide a lot of great information to help them get started with pharmacy billing. John, Eric, we really do appreciate your comments. I know there's a lot to say as it relates to billing, and so I appreciate you taking time to give us some snippets. I hope our listeners have found this information helpful, and we'll see you next time on the Pharmacy Forward podcast. Thanks for listening to Pharmacy Forward, a podcast about transforming knowledge into action. If you like this podcast, Please subscribe using your favorite podcast app and tell all of your pharmacy friends and colleagues. Be sure to rate us and send us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Pharmacy Forward is produced by the Division of Pharmacy Professional Development at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy. For more information about our professional development program, visit pharmacycpd.org. That's pharmacycpd.org. Thanks for listening.